Well, good morning to everyone. And just, again, know that we miss having you here. We know that there is a power in fellowship. We know that the Word tells us the importance of fellowship. But I'm grateful for the friends that are here this morning. I'm grateful to be part of this church. And I hope that you know that uh, we haven't forgotten about you and we love you, we think about you, and we pray about you often. I am grateful to have the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning, and thank you for Pastor Ken and Pastor Phil for allowing me to do so. And if uh, all goes well, then we'll see you again next week as well. There's a lot going on in Acts chapter 8, and so we'll cover it uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, One of my favorite movies, we're not talking top ten, but one of my favorite movies is Anna and the King. Uh, Maybe you've seen it, or maybe you've seen the uh, musical The King and I that's related to it. Um, The reason I liked the movie was because I'm a big fan of Chow Yun-Fat, who's uh, an actor that plays the King of Siam. And then you have Jodie Foster, who plays... Uh, essentially an an English woman. Um, She has a young teenage boy, and she's a widow. And the king of Siam has a desire to sort of move his country in some ways towards the Western world. He doesn't want to give up his culture, but he sees there's some importance to that, and so he invites this English school teacher to essentially come and Uh, teach his kids, and he's got like 50 kids, and he's got 20-something wives, Uh, so it's clearly a a different culture, and uh, the story unfolds in this environment. So Anna, when she comes, she comes from, of course, an entirely different culture, a very Western culture. She's from a a pretty high-up family. Uh, She knows the royalty to some degree. Um, She has a lot of strength, a lot of character. She's got her ideas, and she's very set in her ways is the deal. Um, So she, like the king of Siam, has a desire to see Siam change. That's very uh, sudden when he gets there. When she gets there and realizes what the culture's like, you know, she's kind of blown away uh, with all these wives, all these kids. Um, But she shows deference to the king. She chooses to bow before him when she would rather not. She sees men and women on an equal playing field, and that culture did not. And beyond that, um, she also will never let her head be higher than the king, so she respects the the culture that's going on there. And of course, there's a a romantic element to the story that that unfolds throughout, as is to be expected, and also as to be expected by the end of the story, you don't have a Siam that looks at all like England, you know. But at the same time, one cannot deny that the very presence of that woman in Siam for a short time would forever change the king and would forever change Siam. And it wasn't just because some woman showed up with some ideas. It was because of who the woman was. It was her strength of character combined with her respect and her patience. Um, It was her, her life really, that made the difference there rather than her words. Why do I bring this up as we talk about Paul as he stands before the king? Um, Similar, you know, Rome, Greek, very different culture from the Jewish culture, very different ideas. Uh, 
Paul, though, very set in his ways. He has a very clear desire to spread the gospel, and he's willing to die for it. The royalty that we see there, again, set in their own ways. And, and both sides know that not everything's going to change overnight, though Paul would love for that to happen, just like Anna. What Paul does is he goes about and lives his life as a man of character, or as Chuck Swindoll calls it in his book about Paul, as a man of grace and grit. I want us to keep that in mind this next couple weeks as we look at Paul to understand that the words he says are fantastic, but if it wasn't for the man and the life that he lived, the man that he was and the life that he lived, um, I'm not sure that the words would have made that much difference. It takes both. Um, I've always said, at least as long as I've been a thinking Christian, that I believe it's your day-to-day life that's your greatest witness. God brings the opportunities and you just need to be willing to share. Uh, Let's start this morning with a little bit of context. It's my belief that context uh, is the thing that adds history and fact and life to a story. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom out there. There's a lot of people who write. There's a lot of people who think. Um, There's philosophers. There's teachers. uh, But it's historical facts and a historical context that I think takes Scripture and makes it uh, stand all the higher because we know that it's the Word of God. It's testable. It's trustworthy. And so the context adds some uh, depth and some richness. Uh, as we see Paul before King Agrippa II in Caesarea, let's remember a few things about how he got there. First of all, we saw that Paul was arrested by Roman soldiers in Jerusalem while he was being beaten back in Acts chapter 21. They arrested him as he was being beaten by the Jewish leadership. And then he was released and he stood before the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin is basically the highest ruling body in the Jewish culture. So they were comprised of Pharisees, Sadducees, um, some other portions of the Jewish culture, but they were the ruling party. So he's released, he stands before the Sanhedrin, but uh, we're told in Acts 23 that a Roman commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces And so, essentially, he's arrested and he's imprisoned. Note that that's twice that we see that Paul's, in some ways, protected by the Roman government. Then we're told of a fast. You know, you and I might fast for a period of time. Well, there were 40 Jewish folks who were uh, taking a fast, uh, who decided nobly to not eat or drink for a cause. Problem is, that cause was that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Uh, We're told that the Roman commander was tipped off by Paul's nephew, and so the commander arranged for Paul to be transferred to Caesarea, and the Roman governor at that time, Felix, uh, and uh, Pastor Ken's been talking to us the last few weeks about Felix and Festus. He's not there but five days, and the Jewish leaders come there, we're told, intent on proving Paul's guilt, but guilt of what? More on that in a bit. Paul does enjoy two years of protection under Governor Felix. I'm not sure how enjoyable it was, but he was alive. He was not being killed by the Jewish folks. And we are told in Acts 24 he was allowed to be cared for by his friends. So let's remember there's that two-year period of time there. And then Governor Festus comes and replaces Governor Felix. 
Three days after that happens, just two years of some quiet time, but three days after a new governor is in town, we see the Jewish leaders back presenting charges against Paul and asking for Paul to be transferred back to Jerusalem. Why? Well, Acts 25 tells us it's because they had a plot to kill him during the journey. Let's remember that over the course of a two-year period of time, this was constantly brewing. They were not going to let up on their desire to have Paul killed. Festus, the one who replaced Felix, declines and instead invites the Jewish leaders to come for a hearing in Caesarea. So I just think it's interesting that we can observe in this period of time that God's hand is working through the Roman government on numerous occasions to protect Paul from his own people. Why would they do that? Another bit of context, that they wanted to avoid any open conflict with the Jewish people. That was their primary goal. These governors and even King Agrippa, who's kind of like a governor, they all answer to the Emperor Caesar, cannot afford open conflict or worse, war with the Jewish people because they then would be responsible to answer to Nero. This is the reason Felix was effectively fired and replaced by Festus. Felix was no good at containing the, the ongoing conflicts with the Jewish folks. So during this trial, Festus offers Paul another choice of going to Jerusalem, and we're told it's to appease the Jews. So that theme is running throughout that they want to appease the Jews, but they don't need Paul killed either. Paul's savvy. He knows that if he does request an appeal to Caesar, then Festus cannot decide the case. So in some ways, Paul did return the favor to Festus. Paul would not go to Jerusalem again, and Festus wouldn't be to blame. Acts 25, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. And there's an exclamation point in there. You can almost detect the excitement in his voice. And so just a few days later, King Herod Agrippa II arrives to greet Festus. So just a bit about that. Um, again, they all are kind of under Emperor Nero, and he happens to be a king. Others are governors like Festus. But because a new governor was instituted, the king came by to just pay his respects. That is why King Agrippa is there. Uh, kind of like if we elect a new mayor for the city of Portland, you're going to have the councilmen come and greet and meet the mayor soon after he's, he's seated. They have common jurisdictions and common goals, and so there's a respect uh, to be paid. That's why King Agrippa shows up. So a little bit then about Agrippa II. Who is this man? Well, first of all, his dad is Herod Agrippa I. He's the one that killed James, the apostle John's brother. He is also the one that imprisoned Peter. And when the angel helped Peter escape, uh, he's the one that had all of his guards executed as a punishment. And then we're told in Acts 12 that he was struck down by an angel quote, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and by the way, he was eaten by worms and died. So that's his dad. Agrippa II, who Paul is before now, was about 17 at that time, and now before Paul, he's in his early 30s. His great-grandfather was none other than Herod the Great. This is the man who ordered the death of all two-year-old boys and under at the time Jesus was being born. He's the reason that the angel directed Joseph and Mary to take baby Jesus to Egypt. 
And while he wasn't busy focusing on Jesus, he murdered his wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, brother-in-law, uncle, and anyone else that he thought might be a threat to his power. That's his great-grandfather. His uncle is Herod Antipas. Uh, We can thank Herod Antipas for the wonderful opera Salome. If you've ever had the chance, like Jackie and I have, to see that opera, condolences. And uh, if, if you haven't seen it, I don't recommend it. Uh, we sure enjoyed the cultural experience of seeing an opera, but boy, it was grotesque in a word. The opera Salome is all about the beheading of John the Baptist that Herod Antipas, this king's uncle, was responsible for. And he is also the one that we see as part of the trial of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. To say the least, This king, Agrippa II, comes from a long line of very disturbed rulers, an unpredictable and a dangerous family. It is this king, Agrippa II, along with the new governor, Festus, the highest leaders of the Jewish and Roman government and the many high-ranking military officials that one man, Paul, is now going to stand before. We're told this is not a trial. Remember, Festus isn't, or Agrippa is not here for a trial, but he was piqued his interest. He wanted to talk to Paul, and so there's a hearing for that. Uh, The king was here for Festus, but Paul, being the apologist, was going to take the opportunity to defend his faith. And that's what we look at today and then finishing up next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, but thank you that um, history shows that your word is true. Thank you that you've given your word to rely on, to stand on as the truth. Open our hearts and our minds and our spirit to receive what you would have us to learn. Holy Spirit, take these words of your word and apply them to each one, including myself this morning. Um, We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Acts 26, verses 1 through 11. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So in verse 1, he says uh, he began his defense. Paul began his defense. So defense of what? Well, for Paul, it's the defense of the gospel for both Jew and Gentile. That is ultimately what he is here to defend. Paul, the apologist. This passage of Scripture, Acts 26, is commonly looked to as uh, the, the ultimate example of how it is that we go about giving our testimony and apologizing or defending our faith. Um, this, this passage has been dissected many times for that uh, purpose. So that's why Paul is here. That's what he's defending in his mind is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Festus and Agrippa, the defense is about appeasing the Jews. It's about de-escalation. It's about keeping the peace. And remember, they controlled the temple treasury. So it was about keeping the money flowing so that they wouldn't be answer, uh, answerable to Caesar Nero. Uh, for the Jewish leadership that's present in the room, the defense is all about quelling the way, the new Christian church, and its ringleader, Paul. And I think what you see here to begin with and throughout the whole passage is that Paul emerges as the calm and the rational voice. Um, no one is to blame. If you read this again, no one, he doesn't blame anybody. There's no one at fault in Paul's defense. It's not accusatory. It's not judgmental. It's not even inflammatory. And interestingly enough, he actually sides in one way or another with everyone in the room. For the Romans, he says, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. I'm glad to be here. And he meant it with every fiber of his being. He, this is an opportunity to share the gospel with the top of the top. I'm glad to be here, siding with Rome. For the Jews, he throws them a bone and he means it. He says that they honestly, these are people that have been trying to murder him now for years, but he says they honestly and earnestly serve God day and night. He sides with them. And then Paul makes his own confession. I put many of the Lord's people in prison. I cast my vote against them. At one time, I was doing just what these men here are trying to do to me. And in essence, Paul says, I get it. I understand why we're here today. And I have to believe that this opening statement stands apart in the king's mind. There's a tone that's set here. There's years of ongoing arguments and fighting and carrying on. And the Jews and the Romans are constantly embroiled in this. And everybody's tired of it. But here's Paul emerging as a calm and rational voice. And don't think for a second that that doesn't bring a breath of fresh air to the one presiding and listening. The tone is set. The king is listening. Paul honors the king. I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today. And he continues in verse 3, especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Now Paul understands why Agrippa is here. He understands he's here to greet Festus who replaced the fired Felix. And we have to remember the time period we're in. It's about year 59 A.D., and just a few short years after that, in year 66, a bloody war is going to break out between the Romans and Jerusalem. And by AD 70, Jerusalem is going to fall. So we're right in the middle of that. It's a, it's a tinderbox that's brewing. King Agrippa is also familiar with these things. 
But he's also here for another reason. Let's not forget that he was told about Paul's story and said, I want to hear this man myself. It's a family trait. His great-grandfather, Herod the Great, remember, called the Magi to learn about the newborn Messiah and then, because he was always worried about any threat to the throne, devised a plan to kill him with the two-year-olds and whatnot. Uh, Uncle Herod Antipas in Matthew 14.2 says, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is a miraculous power at work in him. Later, Antipas would end up imprisoning and beheading John the Baptist. But there was an intrigue there. And then in Luke 23.8, Antipas says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. For whatever the reasons, Agrippa was intrigued by Paul and wanted to hear him. Acts 25, there's a dead man named Jesus that Paul claims was alive. And King Agrippa responds, I'd like to hear this man myself. And of course, Paul's happy to oblige. This is what Matthew Henry in his commentary says of the king. He says Agrippa was an expert in the customs of the Jewish religion. Agrippa was well-versed in the scriptures of the Old Testament and therefore could make a better judgment upon the controversy concerning Jesus being the Messiah than another could. It is an encouragement to a preacher to have those to speak to that are intelligent and can discern things that differ. Paul, therefore, begs that Agrippa would hear him patiently. Now, additionally, as king, Agrippa controlled the temple treasury. He controlled the investments of the high priest, and he was consulted by the Romans on any religious matters. He even had the authority to appoint the high priest, a pretty cushy arrangement where religion and politics were one and one at this point in time. Uh, maybe another note here just about um, who we're dealing with and, and the Sadducees. Uh, most of the time, King Agrippa, in fact, I believe every time King Agrippa appointed a high priest, he picked a Sadducee, which was one of the parts of that Sanhedrin. Remember, we have Pharisees, we have Sadducees, there's other groups like the Essenes, etc. But Pharisees and Sadducees are the ones that are most commonly mentioned. They make up this Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Paul was a Pharisee. But the Sadducees had a big issue in that they didn't believe in resurrection whatsoever. They didn't believe in anything apocryphal, anything of the end times, um, anything having to do with angels, none of that stuff. They stayed clear from all of that. And King Agrippa, when he appointed high priests, he picked from the Sadducees. But a note about these Sadducees and their disbelief about the resurrection it's easy to assume that this represented a substantial portion of the population. I mean, you think today, Democrat, Republican, half the people are Democrat, half the people are Republican. Well, we know that's not true. And just like today, back then, half the people Pharisees or believing with the Pharisees, half Sadducees believing with them, not true. What we're told is that the vast majority of the Jewish people did believe in resurrection. They did believe in eternal life. It just so happens that the Sadducees had the money. They were the aristocracy. They were the elite of the Jewish people. They were the ones tied to Rome. 
Nothing changes. It's the same today. There's a few with most the money and most the power. And I don't critique for that. That's the way the world is. But understand the Sadducees were a few people in the big picture. The reason they're talked about so much in the New Testament is solely because of the resurrection. Their belief in no resurrection, if somebody bought into that, meant that the faith was dead, it was useless. There has to be a resurrection. And so the apostles spoke to that regularly, but understand that that was a very minority mindset. And if you don't want to take my word for it, let me add one piece. This is an old college textbook, Understanding the New Testament. It's a dry read, but um, it leaves some good parting words here about the Sadducees. When the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70, the Sadducees quickly disappeared from the Jewish scene. Their understanding of the Torah was so literal and unimaginatively limited and the religious piety so narrowly centered on the temple that once the temple was destroyed, their reason for existence ceased. The disappearance of the Sadducees marked the triumph of their chief rivals, the Pharisees. A fitting, if not ironic, end to a group of people who do not believe in a resurrection. They would disappear, never to be heard from again. No resurrection for the Sadducees indeed. So the single greatest component of Paul's apologetic is the resurrection of the dead. If the dead are not raised, then Jesus is dead. And if Jesus is dead, he is not God. Salvation by faith through grace alone, that's Paul's number two, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, there's no use in discussing salvation at all. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So as Paul talks to King Agrippa, who's aligned with the Sadducees, Paul says, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul tells Agrippa that he was a strict Pharisee, the strictest of the Jewish religious political parties. A Pharisee is the least likely to be guilty of breaking any Jewish law. So he Starts off with that. And remember, though he's aligned with the Sadducees, it's because of the money, it's because of the power. We believe Agrippa didn't firmly hold, uh, and maybe didn't hold at all to this concept of no resurrection, especially since we're told that he um, knew of, of the prophecies and followed that in the Old Testament scriptures. So he clearly bought into much more than the Sadducees were. I mentioned earlier that Paul doesn't accuse anybody. Back in verse 6, he says, Now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Let's not gloss over the words Paul uses here. He says, quote, the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. Our 12 tribes. This is a time in history where the 12 tribes are scattered. They're split apart. They're under Roman control. 
using the words, our 12 tribes, what the king and the Romans heard was a man who wanted unification, a man who wanted peace. He wanted to be the solution instead of the ongoing quarrels and fights that's going to ultimately lead to this war. So Paul joins the 12 tribes, our 12 tribes, not a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, not a Roman citizen, but a focus on the common beliefs that most Jews would agree to. The promise. A focus on unification of the 12 tribes. And King Agrippa would likely want to buy into this. Again, we're told he's well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, um, the law, and especially the prophets. He's intrigued. Paul has found something here that all parties, everyone in the room, should be able to agree to. And that is there's a common promise of the 12 tribes that they are hoping to see fulfilled. Notice also Paul's words. It's not the promise that is fulfilled. Now understand, Paul's going to be willing to die for the promise that's fulfilled. But he doesn't go that far. He says, let's start at the beginning. We all hope on a promise, not that is fulfilled, but that the 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. He's acknowledging that not everybody in the room believes that the promise is fulfilled. He's again aligning with his accusers. And he says, we serve the same God, both day and night, in a common hope. Even the Sadducees think that they're serving God, the same God. And then he drives it home. He uses his name, King Agrippa. It is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. So what is the hope, and why because of it are the Jews accusing Paul? It's a common hope for most, the majority of the Jews, and all Christians, and that is a hope in a Judeo-Christian, one true creator God. There is a common hope between all of us in an eternal life. Now we know that that resurrection through the promised Messiah is how that hope is fulfilled. But all share the same hope. The Sadducees, they're a sect. They're a minor party. There's no resurrection for them, no eternal life. And as we pointed out, they fade away. So the Jews, the Christians, have some commonality here. Um, The Scripture supports eternal life and Messiah for the Jews. That's what they're hoping for. It's just the Christian believes that that's through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is ultimately going to get into next week as we continue his testimony. So for the Jew, the hope is about the Messiah yet to come. For the way, or the Christians, it's about the Messiah who's already come. For the Roman or the Gentile in the room, it's a new idea. Another new idea in the age of ideas. Some of them rejected resurrection. Some believed it was possible. King Agrippa, at the least, would have likely been open to the idea. The resurrection is the common thread in what it is that Paul stands accused of. The Sadducees say no resurrection and so Jesus can't be the Messiah. The Pharisee says there's a resurrection someday, but Jesus wasn't the Messiah. So for different reasons, the Pharisees, the Sadducees agree that Jesus wasn't the one. And this is really what's going on here. For the king, at this point, he's thinking, is there even a crime here? 
what, do we, what is this even all about? This sounds like we're talking about Jesus here. It could be viewed that Paul was trying to show, as Matthew Henry puts it, quote, that Christians who hope in the same Messiah for the same heaven, though differing in modes and ceremonies of worship, could still live together in holy love. You understand that? We have differing beliefs, and a lot is at stake. But there's a same God, there's a common hope. Can we live in peace with one another? Can we trust that God is going to use that and open doors for us to share, moving towards a common understanding of the truth? Put differently, I, Paul, hope to come to the same heaven at last that they hope to come to. And if we expect to meet so happily in our end, why should we fall out so unhappily by the way. Can you imagine what this must sound like to King Agrippa? Reasonable. This makes sense. He's listening. A logical man like King Agrippa could agree that the point is a fair question. And I wonder, does the king at this point recall not that long ago as a young boy when Uncle Antipas had the Jewish leaders before him accusing Jesus? We're told that Agrippa was a likable man, respected, very knowledgeable. Is it a stretch to wonder if he thought about the same stories he heard his family tell of Jesus and compared them to the situation he's in right now as these same Jewish leaders accuse Paul about the same Jesus? I believe Paul is working on Agrippa's personal life experiences as he talks to him. He's connecting the dots, at least letting the Holy Spirit do that. But for Jesus to be the Messiah, the resurrection of the dead has to be possible now. And Paul presses on this point in verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now we have an audience here of somewhat open minds other than a few of the Jewish leaders, and he raises a philosophical question. Paul is different from the other apostles. He wasn't a fisherman. He wasn't a tax collector. He wasn't uneducated. Paul was a tent maker. He worked for a living, but he was so much more than that. He was taught by the elite teacher of the Pharisees, Gamaliel. He spoke Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. He could reason with the philosophers. He was well-versed in the Greco-Roman culture. He understood philosophy and mythology. His education, his ability to communicate and understand with the rest of the Gentile world, yet being a humble man, a tent maker, who works for a living, this was going to be the key to the future of the church. In his wonderful book that is a good and enjoyable read called Church History in Plain Language, Bruce Shelley says that no man other than Jesus, of course, has shaped Christianity more than Paul. No one did more for the faith. And he later writes, more lasting and resilient than the forces that opposed it, the message of the apostles would endure persecution and opposition emerging centuries later as the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. 
So here we are in this room with King Agrippa, Governor Festus, the guards, the high-ranking officials, the Jewish leaders, all of these people who either believe in the Judeo-Christian God or believe in some kind of God. And so Paul goes to philosophy with a simple question that anyone with a sliver of an open mind in that room could see one possible answer. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In the Greco-Roman world, it was full of various gods, especially fertility gods. We've read about Artemis or Diana already in the book of Acts. These gods are inherently tied to Mother Nature. One could look no further than nature itself and see the evidence of the resurrection today. A modern uh, worship song writer and poet, um, I say that because her lyrics are poetic, but Amanda Lindsay Cook, she writes an article and she says this about the seasons. I've shared this with you before. I needed to go for walks around Radnor Lake in Tennessee and just feel the presence of the life in the seasons. I needed to watch winter happen and feel it. I grew up in Canada where we have a very harsh winter and we spend a lot of time indoors or we learn how to bundle up and go right out in the center of that cold, stark season and see the beauty for what it is. Sometimes I think we try to fast forward through winter or fall. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of fall for some kind of front to the idea that we need to be producing fruit all the time. That's not true. Nature knows us better than we do because they give in to the seasons wholeheartedly. You don't see a tree resisting the fall. They don't resist death. They embrace it. They surrender to it. And then on the other side of that is resurrection called spring. Matthew Henry says this, Do we not see a kind of resurrection in nature at the return of every spring? Has the sun such a force to raise dead plants and should it seem incredible to us that God should raise dead bodies? I put to you, if we are made from the dust of the earth and life is breathed into us, can we not be resurrected by that same God? Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul is planting a seed right there. He's trusting that God will resurrect the seed into a fruit-bearing plant in each listener in that room. If they can accept a resurrection in any form, then they have to reject the concept that there is no resurrection. As the logical thinkers that they were at that time, the Greeks and Romans were one step closer to accepting the stories that of the resurrected Jesus could be true. And in time, those same Romans would institute the Christian faith, as Shelley said it, as the dominant faith of the Roman Empire. It started with a seed. I believe it started with Paul in that room. Next week, 
Paul, having captured his audience, and specifically King Agrippa, is going to transition into his testimony and deliver the gospel message, not only to the king, but to everyone in that room and to you and to I. I want you to think about three things this week. When you talk to those who have not accepted Jesus Christ, do you try to find the starting point? Concepts that you can all agree on and then build from there? Two, when you're talking to someone and you're sharing your faith, do you accuse, even if it's subtle, do you accuse or do you focus more on trying to relate? And third, when you're talking with them, are both feet on the ground or do you ascend higher than the person you're talking to? Remember, it's only God who makes things grow as you share your story or your testimony with others. When Paul started talking to the king, he was shackled to a Roman soldier. You could hear the chains as they rattled as he extended his hand in a customary motion of deference to the king before a single word even came out of his mouth. Let's remember that. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week.